Hey, everybody. Welcome into the back room. I'm Andy Ostroy. We have a really interesting guest for you today, Erin Merrin. I will describe her biography in a second. First, I just want to say thank you for tuning in. We appreciate you listening, and we'd love to hear your comments. So email us at backroomandy at gmail.com, and perhaps we'll read a few next time. And if you like the podcast, this is really important, please follow or subscribe to be notified every time we post a new exciting episode and even the non-exciting episodes. So let's get to Erin. Erin Merrin is an internationally recognized author, speaker, and child abuse advocate and activist. She earned her MSW from Aurora University. For six years of her childhood, she was sexually abused, and she kept her secret locked away in her childhood diary. Before graduating high school, Erin published that diary into a book called Stolen Innocence. She has since published four more books, In 2013, in her home state of Illinois, she succeeded in getting Erin's Law passed. Erin's Law requires personal body safety taught in public schools, and it currently is in 38 states. Since 2004, Erin has shared her story in over 200 publications and has appeared on Oprah, OWN, Today, Good Morning America, CBS This Morning, CNN, Fox, Katie Couric, Tamron Hall, MSNBC, and many more. In 2015, she was featured in the documentary Breaking the Silence on TLC, and Glamour Magazine named Erin Woman of the Year, and People Magazine named her one of 15 women changing the world. Erin, welcome into the back room. Thanks for having me. So before we get into what is so important, Erin's Law, which is your mission, Tell us a little bit about your background, where you grew up, what kind of kid you were, what were you into as a kid, and that kind of thing. I grew up in the suburbs of Chicago, which is where I still live. I came from a family of three girls, and often the highlight of my childhood was spending time at my parents' lake house in Wisconsin. And looking back, it seemed pretty picture perfect until when I went off to kindergarten, met my best friend, and it was at her house where I noticed life was a little different than mine. She didn't have a dad in the picture, mom, single parent, you know, struggling to get by and had her brother living with her to help take care of her kids. And it was at my very first overnight at her house that I woke up in the middle of the night to that uncle who lived in the home coming in and sexually abusing me. You were how old at this point? I was six. Six, wow. Yeah, didn't say anything, didn't tell anybody. I hadn't been educated on it. I knew about strangers, knew not to look for the lost puppy or take candy. That had been drilled in my head, but nothing on if you're being abused, you report it, you don't keep this secret. And something to know about these predators, if they're doing it to one child, they're often doing it to others. And if they're getting away with it, they're going to keep doing it until they're stopped. And that's exactly what this man did. He continued to abuse me from six, seven, eight All the behavior signs were there of an abused child. I was acting out. They put behavior plans in place for me, labeled me in in writing as a behavior and emotionally disturbed child. I went as far as to put my hand through a window because my sister had pulled my shoes off and made me suddenly relive this whole moment weeks earlier, just before I turned seven of this man raping me. I mean, I could tell you the shirt he wore that day, the dresses hanging in the closet, And my best friend making me pinky promised her that I would not tell anybody what he does because he threatened her that they'd be living on the streets and homeless if she told her mother what he was doing to her. 
And it was the first time I realized I wasn't alone and he was also doing it to her. I always wondered what goes through the mind of a six-year-old who really doesn't know about any of this stuff and what it means, except that it's different than what I'm used to, that other people in my life, my mommy, my daddy, they don't do this. You know what? A lot of fear and confusion. And I think that's the best word I can describe it is fear, confusion, not knowing, you know, knowing this is wrong, but not knowing why you're being targeted. Why is this happening to me? Is this happening to other, you know, kids? But when you're being threatened and that what this is what this man did was threatening me after he did it the first time. I know where you live. I'll come get you. Don't you dare tell anybody. And so that's what I did. I was being threatened and feared something bad would happen that I wouldn't be believed and that he'd come get me. So I kept it a secret, not revealing to anybody. And my behavior problems were blamed on other things and said, oh, she'll outgrow it. And the only reason my abuse ended at the hands of this man was because we moved at eight and a half years old. I got away from him, made new friends in my new school. But as soon as they started asking me to spend the night, I said no. I was terrified of their dads, stepdads, you know, older brothers living in the home and waking up in the middle of the night to this happening again to me. But it did, right? With a cousin. Yes. So we moved, got away. Fast forward to now age 11. I wake up staying with my grandparents and a whole bunch of my cousins and older sister to my older cousin, who was like a brother, since I never had a brother, sexually abusing me. And that went on until I was 13 threatened. I would destroy our family, Aaron, if you tell anyone, you've got no proof I'm doing this. They're going to call you a liar. So I wrote about it in my diary, kept it locked away, hidden under my mattress, writing what was happening at Thanksgiving, Christmas, family gatherings, dinners, and while I babysat his two little brothers. He would come home, lock me in bedrooms, basements, closets, you name it. Any opportunity he got, he would abuse me, threaten me, and it was just this continued cycle. And something I mentioned earlier is if they're doing it to one child, they're often doing it to somebody else. And the reason my abuse ended at 13 with the cousin wasn't because of the cop that had just taught me the eight ways to say no to drugs through dare. No, he didn't teach me the eight ways on how to get away and tell today what was going on. It was my 11-year-old sister coming to me and saying that this same cousin was also sexually abusing her. Mm. And the two of us came forward and reported what he was doing. Have you found that it's common for these types of abusers to say the same thing? Is it a script that they all say, don't tell anyone, I'll harm you, I'll harm your family? Yes. it's Well, it's very common with these abusers to sometimes for some kids, like threaten the lives of other family members. Now, that never happened to me, but there are perpetrators, especially when it's like a dad or a stepdad or a grandpa saying, I'll hurt mom, I'll hurt your siblings, I'll kill them if you tell anybody what I do. So threatens like that are often something else predators use is gifts. They'll gift the kids with toys, electronics, money, tickets to something, outings to keep their silence, to keep them from reporting anything. And they're giving them this special attention that this child is not used to maybe because they're neglected, you know, not, you know, and from a big family and they're just kind of lost in the crowd. And suddenly this particular person just grows interest, whether it's a family member, a coach, youth pastor, you name it. 
And they just find manipulative ways to silence kids. It's shocking and the statistics are alarming, but yet we live in a society that wants to look the other way, pretend it's not going on. When you, me, and everybody else knows someone that has been sexually abused, we might just not know their name because people stay quiet about it, don't report it, too much shame around it, or they're still being silenced and abused right now. On your website, it says every six minutes a child is sexually abused in the United States. One in every four girls and six boys will be sexually assaulted before they turn 18. Over 90% of those cases is by a family member or friend, but only one in every 10 sexually abused children ever tell anyone about it. Those are our astounding statistics. Oh, yeah. And it's, it's sickening how often this is happening around this world. It is an epidemic. But it is one that people have a hard time grasping or thinking, oh, this might happen to this person's kid or, you know, but this won't happen to mine. This only happens to kids living, you know, living in poverty or in a single family home or more at risk, you know. And that's the, the sad reality. I try to wake parents up saying, look at the statistics, o open up the newspaper, read the stories online. These are not people, you know, this, this happens to people of all walks of life. You've got, you know, kids that come from great homes, very wealthy, that are being abused. You've got the people that you would least suspect of abusing children that are the ones that are abusing them. Well, that's an interesting point because I was going to ask you your feelings on the subject of whether abuse happens once someone's in a position where they have the access to children or do people go into certain lines of work because that's where the children are? For example, clergy, teachers, coaches, all the people you mentioned before. Is there some motivation to enter that line of work because it Force. will expose you to kids and put you in a position of power and influence? It's an easy way for these predators. I mean, I'm sure there's plenty that get into that field Particularly, maybe not, they don't start off teaching and like, you know, things like coaches. There are a lot of coaches out there that get into coaching. It's easy. You don't need this big education background. It's an easy access to kids. Mm -hmm. And it's, well, you just need a background check and boom, you're in. And they're having this opportunity to farm a child. Um, substitute teachers. It's easy. You don't need this, you know, full on education background, easy access to get in find a child and abuse them. But yes, it's often people that, you know, are of authority overlooking kids, caring for them that are doing this to them, the people you trust. I used to watch the show To Catch a Predator. And my favorite. Was that? <laughs> One of my favorites. Yeah, I no, watched. I was obsessed because I, I was repulsed and fascinated at the same time because of the type of people, the level of people, the status of certain people that they would be arresting, priests, rabbis, principals of schools. And it really was chilling. I'm not sure why they took that show off the air because I think it really did serve a purpose. But the other fascinating part was that you'd see people on the show get caught and they'd be like, oh, I watch Predator. I knew this was going to happen because it's pathological. And even if they watch the show and they know what likely could happen, they still go ahead and do it anyway. I honestly believe, this is my personal belief, that there is no amount of treatment that these predators can get to 
cheer them to, I, I feel like of, of all crimes out there from murderers to, you know, bank robbers, drug dealers, all of it. I think the most that are the, the highest rate of reoffending are the sexual predators that just are driven, even after being locked up, the few that get locked up, they release back into society and do it again. I mean, there's the story on the news right now. I don't know if you've seen it about the man, I believe he spent 17 years for rape and was released, found a woman, was in a relationship with her and registered sex offender family who didn't do the background, knew the mom, didn't know mom was dating this, you know, registered sex offender. As her daughter goes spend the night at the house, what does this man do? He kills five of them, murders their daughter and the other little girl that was spending the night in the house. Mom had no idea this man was a registered sex offender. Right. That society right back at it. And he literally had just been released. What about your two abusers? What happened to them, if anything? Well, the cousin was a teenager. My parents did not go forward with the truck going through a trial, did not want to put my sister and I on the stand because being a teenager, he'd probably get, you know, who knows? I don't think we'd even get juvenile detention, even though he confessed and they put him under arrest. They just wanted him to get help so he did not hurt somebody else. So he went through court, was given probation, community service, couldn't come near my sister and I, pretty much a slap on the wrist. And the other man that abused me when I was six, seven, and eight, I did not come forward till I was in my early 20s. And by then, it was a he said, she said, he was not cooperating with police, would not return their phone calls. They told me, unless we can get him in an interrogation room and talk to him, there's no way for us to arrest him because we have no evidence to prove that he did this. So he's still out there. Fortunately, he's a very unhealthy, sick man that never got married, never had children, on disability. So, you know, he's being punished in his own, in his own way. And do you, being do, you suspect, do you suspect that he has done this countless times over the years? Well, well, my thought is once his sister found out he was still living with her, as I mentioned, he never got married. She kicked him out that night. She had told me he had had girlfriends over the years, but never mentioned him being around other kids. However... Back when, after I moved, she had some other girlfriends in the house staying there. I knew of another girl he abused that never came forward. Well, I had posted a picture on my Aaron's Law Facebook page of the home that I was abused in. This home, my best friend's house, saying how anybody else driving down the street would this look at this house and would not even blink an eye. But for me, it was a house of horror where all these horrible things had happened, where this monster was. I post this on social media, just using it as an example that for other people, it might be at church. It might be the school they went to. This woman private messages me and says, Aaron, I know that house you just posted. I've been following you for years. I'm a teacher who teaches your law. I know that monster you're talking about. I played in that house for years as a child. I got goosebumps. We immediately got on the phone. And she told me how this man, this rapist of mine, had groomed her. Start. And that's what these predators do that pe- parents need to understand. They'll groom kids and see how far they can go to access, you know, playing with the hair, touching their legs, their shoulders, and progressively getting worse until they are full on abusing the child. And she told me the grooming behavior of this guy. He'd sit there and play with their hair, how he'd rub her shoulders and how she kept like trying to get him, you know, away from her. And eventually she was in a back bedroom, one of the bedrooms in the house. And he pushed her up against a closet in one of the bedrooms. 
and she was able to push him off and get herself out. And it was at that point she realized that she needed to stay away from this man. And good for her, I told her. It's amazing that, you know, at that young of an age, you know, as a 12-year-old understood that she was in danger and got herself out of that situation. And then she told me the story about the other girl across the street that used to play with them all the time. All, every day after school, she goes, and then one day, she was never allowed to play over at Ashley's house again. And she would not tell us why. Ashley could play at her house, but she never came back. You and I can both assume what went on there. The fact that she was never allowed to go over there again. She told her so parents <laughs> and her parents, rather than go to the police, it, just said, stay away. Right. Stay away. Or she just herself just, you know, something, the horrible things happened there and just stayed away. Hmm. So the diary you kept, that became the basis of your first book, right? Yes. I turned my childhood diary word for word into a book called Stolen Innocence, mm -hmm. my senior year. And how did that book get received, given that you it, were a high school senior, which I can't imagine yeah, it, calling it, that kind of attention on yourself. I mean, I have a 19-year-old daughter, and it's like the self-consciousness is off the charts when you're a teenager. And so doing something like that just not only seems obviously bold and courageous, but surprising yeah. too, you know? Right. Yeah. Well, I was going down such a destructive path in my high school year, self-harm, suicide attempt. I mean, you name it, I was miserable. And a therapist told me, you have a lot of anger towards your cousin. He's away at college now. Write a letter of what you'd want to say to him. Get all your anger out if you were sitting across from him and you could tell him what you'd want to say. Next week, bring it back and read it to me. I think this might be therapeutic. Don't send it to him or anything. Also, what did I do? I found his email address after writing that five-page letter, sent it to him, never expected a response because it was nasty. I got all my anger out. He responded a week later. And for seven months, we went back and forth. And wanting answer, why did you do this? Why did you do this to my sister when I was being silent? What is wrong with you? Did somebody do this to you? I heard you raped other girls after you got arrested for us. Is this true? Of course, he denied it. I don't believe him. And so, but at the end, he said, I'm sorry. I hope you can forgive me. And I decided at that point, I was continuing to allow him to rob my joy and happiness by staying angry and bitter. So I decided to forgive him and do something positive out of these horrible things that went on in my life. And that's when I decided to take the diary and all of his letters and my letters, change his name because my I wasn't seeking revenge, but I wanted to put a face and voice on this silent epidemic. When I researched it, I go, I felt so alone and realized with the statistics, one in four girls, one in six boys, there are other people walking the halls of high school that had experienced this. And I thought I was alone. So I made it my mission. I wanted to put a face and voice on this. And senior year of high school, I did just that. And have since then, gone on to write three, you know, three more books of my experience mm -hmm. and, you know, really going out there and speaking in front of thousands and done just about every national television network you can imagine, because I'm one of those people that won't shut up about this. Mm -hmm. I want to wake protect kids. Because there are many more monsters like the one in my neighborhood and the one in my family living in communities that parents trust and have no idea what is going on. In the book, the first book, are they named or did you make the, them anonymous? So I made it, I gave my cousin a pen name 
throughout the book. I actually gave him a name in my diary. I would call him my cousin. Well, then I started referring to him as Brian because I feared if my parents ever found my diary, they wouldn't know who Brian is because we don't have a cousin named Brian. And so I feared them finding out who the identity of who this person really was. They never found my diary, but I continued with that pen name, the fake name I gave him into the book. Um, and why did you do that? Why did you protect him in that way? I didn't. Well, I feared, even though he confessed, I feared lawsuits. I feared what he might do. Mm-hmm. Would he revenge? And, and that was the thing. I, my goal was not to, you know, oust him and, you know, get revenge. My goal was really to put a face and voice on this, show people what he did. But then. But on some know, level, you like, were still afraid. Oh, yeah. I was afraid of what it might cause him mm-hmm. to do because I, he continued to do this. You know, he denied it to me. But I heard he continued to do this and he flat out said, nope, that never happened. And sadly, you know, that was in high school. I heard that sadly, fast forward all these years later, we now got Facebook about seven years ago. I got an email on social media. Everybody knows his name is Brian on my public Aaron's law page. All of a sudden I got a notification. Someone has written on your wall. There is my cousin's full real name with the words raped me. And I'm just sitting there going, oh my gosh. Oh my gosh, wow. I don't know who woman is. I'm sitting there taking a screenshot and I panicked and immediately deleted her posts because it's just freaking out going, his name's out there. Oh no. And then I look back and I'm like, shoot, why did I delete that? Why did I? And it was just a moment of just fear and panic that somebody knew who this person was. Well, you're still traumatized. Back, oh yeah. And we went back and forth in messages, her telling me how he raped her in college. Her exact words were, you know, now he's an adult. Her exact words were that he raped her in college. He is not the changed man he tried to convince you he was. He just knows what to say. And I got goosebumps. I'm like, she's right. He knows what to say. And that is why he has continued to get away with this. And you know what's the most disturbing thing? This is a man with four children, one of which is 11 years old. And you know what he's doing? He's coaching the girls softball team through the park district. It makes me sick because his records are hidden because he was a juvenile. So all these parents don't know that this predator is out there hmm. with their kid. Have you ever thought of just somehow quietly, anonymously throwing something out there that's untraceable oh, I, to you to, to alert I, parents to that? I did. In the town that he is, I went to the town's name and there's a town with called the mom's page. And I went on the mom's page. Didn't tell him who he was, but put my story out there, a video that had been done, said this person has never been named, but I just want you to know that this man lives in your town. So rethink the thought of letting your kids have overnights, talk to them about personal body safety, because I would really hate for you to experience what I did with this man. Good for you. And people will be able to put the pieces together and figure out who he was and confront him. They did. Well. Oh, yes. I had parents coming to me saying their husbands confronted him and he flat out told them I'm mentally ill, that none of this happened, that all he ever did was grab my butt and got probation. So he flat out denies it. But some people have come to the realization that they know the truth and have completely distanced themselves or have no contact with that man anymore. Sadly, there's no idea. Well, I want to ask you about Aaron's Law, but first I want to ask you a, a pretty personal question. And I want to preface it by saying that I kind of grew up in a dysfunctional family. I often 
joke that I've been raised by wolves. So I know how all that has messed me up. Okay. So I'm curious to know, because you seem pretty amazing sitting here right now. But where are you today in terms of the trauma, in terms of how those experiences at such a young age may or may not still be impacting you today with relationships with friends, relationships with men. Have you been able to move beyond that? And and do you feel like you, you are living and experiencing a quote-unquote normal, healthy life? Or is this still baggage yeah, no, that you carry? In- no, I definitely feel like I am, you know, my life is taking a totally different spin and I'm super blessed to have this amazing life that I thought I would never get. I had to struggle for years with trust issues of men. And literally after every three months, it was like the three month, okay, I'm out. We're too close. I was having so many flashbacks of what had happened in my past. I can't be with these men and feared that these perpetrators of mine had taken so much more than just my innocence as a kid, took my ability to trust men. And I feared I would never get the life I'm living now of that family I wanted, raising all those little kids and trusting a man because in you know my experience all the men I'd come across besides you know my father that were close to me in my life were did terrible things to me mm. but thank god I was able to find a wonderful amazing man and but I like to point out to people that just because a child's abuse ends it sticks with them the rest of their life and the rest of their life there'd be different chapters and I was even taught this as a 13 year old that you will go through phases throughout the rest of your life where you think that you have just moved on, everything is wonderful, and then something else happens. I was told, like, when you give birth to a child, sometimes that triggers women that have been abused, brings it all. Others are when you have children of your own or your kids are the age you were when you were abused. And the thing that, you know, is is my big thing now is my my fear of this happening to my kids, of wanting to protect my kids but not be a helicopter parent. So it's educating my kids, but also not allowing them to go to sleepovers. You know, some people will sit there and tell me, and it's been said to me, you know, why are you taking your terrible, awful experiences of your past and punishing your kids by not allowing them to have overnights with their friends? Some of the greatest memories I have, they'll tell me, was the overnights. Or it was the overnights where they were safe because their abuser was in the home. It was going to the best friend's house. And I'm sorry, I'm not willing to take any risk at all of allowing my kids to go into the home of somebody, I don't care how well I think I know them, sleep over at their house. And sadly, for so many parents, it's the moms that know each other and the dads they've waved to in passing or mom's boyfriend or, you know, for some people, they don't even know the grandpa or, you know, uncle live in the home. They think it's just dad and and if no, parents are just clueless. And I'm not willing to take that risk. Well, everybody always thinks something bad happens over there. It never happens over here. People who know me and know my story know that my late wife was murdered. She was 40 years old. And until that happens to you, you just think other people get murdered. Other families have this. You read the tabloid magazines and newspapers and you're just like, oh, okay, another day, another murder. But when something like that happens to you and your family, it just changes your whole purview. It makes you realize that it's not over there. It's over here. And so those other parents just haven't had that same experience as you. And they just, whether naively or in denial or just recklessly, don't protect their children, perhaps in the same way that, that you've learned that you need to. 
Oh, no, definitely. I just, I won't take that gamble. And I just hope parents will listen, you know, share my message that I don't want your kids coming to you one day saying, this happened, this yeah. happened to me. And I can give so many perfect examples now that my law is out there and being passed in so many states. Here's the article. Well, tell us about the law. What is the law in a nutshell? Yeah, so the law requires every year, kindergarten to 12th grade, some states it's kindergarten to eighth grade, teaching kids personal body education. This isn't sex ed. I don't want people to get confused. This is teaching age appropriate lessons to kids on how to speak up and tell if they're being abused. The little ones watch usually a video talking. They do role plays of, you know, somebody that touches a kid uncomfortably and, you know, telling uh, telling kids how to speak up and be vocal. And if that person does not stop, to report it to this person. If that person you report to doesn't, you know, doesn't stop it, then here's somebody else you can go. Helping kids identify the difference between safe and unsafe touch, safe and unsafe secrets, the proper names of your body parts, because so many parents call it your PP or your, you know, all these different names. But the sad thing is, if a kid ends up disclosing abuse and has to go in and be interviewed, you've taught them that that's their PP, that's going to go nowhere in court. They're going to say your PP can be your ear, your head, who knows what. And so it's, you know, basically giving kids the, the power and knowledge to protect themselves if something ever happens. And that's so you're in 38 I, states. The first one was yep. Illinois, your home state in 2013. Are you close to other states at this point? Yeah, I just got a pass in Ohio, and I'm actively working on it in Wisconsin, North Carolina, Hawaii, several other states really trying to push it forward. You know, a, a lot of these conservative states I've run into issues because they think this is sex education, and I have to constantly clarify, no, this is all this is teaching. I'm not adding anything else into this that you have anything to worry about. So it's really getting through. What's really helping me now is bringing to the table, to these legislators, to these concerned parents, these, you know, school board associations and this and that that have issues is the evidence that it works. And I'll give you one example that wakes everybody up. New York killed my bill for eight years. One woman had the power and control. She was the chair of education committee. She did not agree with school mandates. So she killed the bill every year, never gave it a hearing. Finally, she moved on. The bill got a hearing. I got a chair of a committee that loved it. We pushed it through. It passed in the assembly and house. Finally, in 2019, Aaron's law was now required in New York schools. That was after going on national television with Juliana Margulies. That was after going after Governor Cuomo, who once it got signed, wasn't signing. I mean, once it got passed, wasn't signing the bill. Like there was all these hurdles. And I told them all, one day I will bring you the proof of why that did not stop pestering you and how this bill gave kids a voice. So I want to Very ask you that, because your your third book, which is called An Unimaginable Act, actually describes your journey th throughout the country to get the law passed. I'm curious about what is the process, if you could walk us through that briefly. What do you literally do when you are targeting a state to get that law passed? So I literally go online. Every state, I'll go to their website, and I will find all of in the Senate and Assembly who is on education committee. And I start writing them. Hi, this is who I am. This is what I've done in this other state. Here are some media clips. Here are success stories of men that are behind bars for life because of this law. You are one of 15 states. You are one of 12 states that has not passed this. Do you want to be the last state to show 
put, put off protecting kids. And then I'll make phone calls. And every six months, if I haven't heard from anyone in that state, I will follow back up because there's always new people being reelected. And so I'm always going to find legislators that are survivors, legislators that have parents. I've, I've sat there and testified and have had grown men crying, legislators saying, I have a daughter that was your age when you're abused and I cannot imagine this happening to them. We need to pass this. And so I just, and if it's dying year after year, one thing I have learned that politicians don't like is negative media attention. The media does wonders. And I just go to them all. And I have so many contacts now. I just write them all from the newspapers, the national news stations to the local, start getting some coverage on it. And that's when things start to usually move. Now, we've had Juliana Margulies on this show several weeks back. And that's how I got to you, because she mentioned that she's involved in this mission with you. How did you guys connect? So in 2012, I was named Glamour Magazine Woman of the Year. And I was told to pick anybody I wanted to present me with the award. And I was told to give them a few names because, you know, one of those other actresses, politicians, singers, whomever I pick might not be available that night. They went down my list and they picked, they reached out. Juliana Margulies had the availability, came and the rest is history. Mm. She heard my story and told me I opened up her eyes. She had never talked to her son about this, you know, and it really opened her eyes to this epidemic. And she said, I want to come alongside you and help you get this passed in my state of New York and every other state. And she's done amazing wonders in, in coming alongside me and is not disappointed me at all in her efforts to help me get this passed. Mm -hmm. And the power of celebrity, obviously, is very important because they have a platform and they have a wide following. Are there other people in that capacity like that that work with you? I have, well, I've actually had some great producers I've worked with on TV networks that have helped me get my story or like Oprah. Oprah was one of the first people to cover my story. Oh, who story. does she, who does Oprah know? No, right? So her doing that story, it got so many legislators responding wow. to my emails. That's when the traction really took off in 2010 mm -hmm. with having that powerful two minute clip of me describing Aaron's law to her that really opened the doors to allow this to move forward. Is it more difficult in a real day-to-day -day sense to get laws passed in a red state versus a blue state? So it used to not be. This was a bipartisan issue. But now with where our society has shifted in the past couple years, just this past few years, I've really seen it, is because of all this comprehensive sex education, there's a lot of conservatives that are concerned about what they're teaching our first graders, our kindergartners. And they somehow fear that Aaron's law is going to incorporate talking to first graders about abortion, about transgender issues, you know, all of that stuff. So there's a, this immediate, no, 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 I don't want my kids taught this before they actually read the legislation and say, no, this is all this is teaching. So that's where I'm really running into issues now is in these red states, but it's only really been occurring in the last couple of years. Is there a little bit of the resistance due to the fox not liking somebody giving the hens a guidebook on how not to get attacked by the fox? Yeah, right? Like, I, I mean, it's just, I tell, I tell these legislators when I get before them, I'm like, 
The only ones that should be sitting here voting against this bill are the ones that want to silence and abuse our kids. Exactly. And the room goes silent. Right. It's a no-brainer. How could you be against something like this unless, you know, whatever, fill in the blank. The current, current governor of Alaska, when I made that statement, he was a legislator and he was against my bill and went to the media and was like, she's making this assumption that I abuse children just because I don't support her law with like this big, you know. Back off, guilty what? Glenda. <laughs> right? So you mentioned before data that you you show data that supports that the law works. What is that data? How do you get that data? So I really take the different organizations coming to me and telling me stories of kids that have disclosed once they've gone into these schools and taught. I've got prosecutors contacting me, the, the prevention educators from these nonprofits coming in. And one of the most powerful stories happened in 2021. First year, Aaron Sloan was taught in New York. An organization, prevention teacher came in, taught Aaron's Law. Nine kids in that one elementary school, the first year in upstate New York, they are taught this, come forward saying they are being abused. And do you know who they all are saying is the perpetrator that has been abusing them? Let me guess. The principal. Principal. Wow. Four years, 17 years in this school. When this made national news, I turned to my husband at night and said, oh, he didn't stop at night. There's going to be dozens more. By the time he went to trial, there were 27 victims. 24 of them took the stand. Some of these kids saying this started when they were six and went on until they were 12. Some of them weekly. He created the Lunch Buddies program with the principal and would have lunch with these all boys. No girls were the victims. No girls had lunch with the principal. Hello, red flag. And would have these boys come into his office, lock the door. They think he's doing lunch buddies with the principal, but no, the principal is molesting these kids. And on their way out, he pulls open his drawer and all his little presents, his trinkets, you can pick one, sends them back to class. Jeez. And one teacher got on the stand and said when the Aaron's Law presentation was taught, the principal came into the room and was being super disruptive, trying to disrupt the whole lesson. These kids are not social distance enough. And she thought it was so odd having no idea why he was behaving this way. One little boy he had abused became very upset and was crying when they were teaching it. Principal walked over and on the stand, she said, little boy was crying and the principal whispered in the boy's ear. She goes, I don't know what he said, but I can assume he threatened that little boy once again to stay silent. He was convicted in November and is sitting behind bars for 62 years. And what I like to tell legislators in those remaining states is multiple of those 26 victims could have been prevented had New York passed Aaron's law eight years previous. There were six, seven, eight-year-olds on the stand who were only two and three when I first went after this law who would have never been victims. But perfect example of why we need to pass this well, because these are out there. That's an incredible story, and that's certainly powerful, compelling data to fur further this mission. You embarked on this journey of yours just a few short years before the Me Too movement uh, erupted. Did that provide the wind in your back the way I think it would have and did? Oh, yeah. With that being out there, that really helped, you know, open doors to get others talking about it, especially in the celebrity world. 
when all of a sudden people are realizing these high profile, you know, directors, you name it, Weinstein, I could go on and on, Larry Nasser, Dusky, you know, that really gets, you know, the conversation going. And what's so sad is, you know, it's still going on. And I guarantee you, one day there's going to be that headline of that well-known person who we are going to find out that has done this and has gotten away with it. Well, speaking of Um, well-known people who have done this and so far until this week have gotten away with it, I want to ask you about the E. Jean Carroll case because it's certainly very topical. It involves someone who claims she was raped, which I'm sure she was, and she won her case this week and Donald Trump was the jury came back finding that she that he was liable for sexual assault, sexual battery. But there's all this controversy over like, why does she wait so long? You know, that conversation. Why does the victim wait so long? Why are they coming out now? When you saw what went down this week, and I'm sure you followed her case and others as well, but what were you thinking this week when you saw on some serious, meaningful level, justice finally getting served? Well, I am very happy with the outcome of that. But what people need to understand, if you've never been a victim of abuse, you do not know. You have no right to sit there and talk about when a victim should come forward, disclose what has happened to them. You don't know the fear. You've got someone that was the president of our country. How the heck that happened? I don't know. (laughs) But people are going to say, you know, this is somebody that has been voted in by the people how am I going to, does somebody get the support? I'm going to be totally laughed at, not believed. There's no way anyone's going to believe me. And so you don't know the power these predators have, especially those who are in high profile power like Trump have to keep victims silent, to keep victims in fear that they will not be believed. I, I mean, I've had comments made to me in the past of, well, if he was abusing and raping you, why would you continue to go over to their house? Oh, I just want to smack people like that. Like, you're totally victim-blaming. Like, do you know how right. sick that sounds? And so you cannot sit there, especially a child in that situation, you cannot sit there and blame these these victims for when they came forward. Because so for so many of them, there's so much fear and shame they carry in sharing what has happened. And this perfect you know, successful outcome of this case hopefully gives other victims the hope that if Trump can be found liable for this, who else could I come forward? Will I be believed? Yeah, well, it's such an important mission you're on for that reason, because we see this time and time again, that no matter how many cases like this, it's the same tropes that have said, you know, why didn't E. Jean Carroll scream, you know, that kind of thing. It's always the woman. It's always the woman's responsibility. And she was wearing a mini skirt, blah, blah, blah. We live in a society where the men who are doing this, like they're always searching for the excuse to blame the victim. I, I always like to say a woman could walk down the street topless with a, a sign on her head that says, I love sex. That doesn't give a man the Don't right you. to rape her. It doesn't matter what she's wearing. Exactly. It doesn't matter what she does for a living. She could be a stripper or a porn star or whatever. It doesn't give you license but then you sit and you watch Donald Trump say, I'm a star and you can. When you're rich and famous and you're a star, you can do it. Well, no, you can't. You can't do it. It's against the law. Finally, he's facing justice. I am thrilled as the father of 
three daughters that you are doing what you are doing. You are the perfect vessel for this. I'm a, I imagine there's a lot of people who go through this kind of trauma who just don't have the tools in their tool belt to do what you're doing and do it so well and articulate it so well. And that's why you're so successful with it. And I wish you so much luck. It has been a thrill to have you on here. I hope you'll come back again when there are more states and more books, because this is an, unfortunately an ongoing problem that's not going away. But I think people like you help it get smaller and smaller. So thanks for coming on. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Take care. Thanks. So that's episode 74. If you like what you've been hearing, and even if you don't, let us know. We appreciate the feedback. You can leave us a message at 845-307-7446, email us at backroomandy at gmail.com, or tweet to me at Andy Ostroy. And when you listen, please take a quick moment to rate and review. It's very helpful. It's also helpful if you do like the podcast and uh, follow and subscribe. Uh, you'll be notified every time we post a new episode, so don't miss that. I want to thank my co-producer, engineer, and editor, Maddie Rosenberg, associate producer, Jen Hamoud, Cricket Langell for our artwork, Andy Hollander for our kick-ass music, Patricia Wynn and the Epicurean for the Backroom Studio, and a big thank you again to our guest, Aaron Marin. So keep your eyes on Washington, Hollywood, and your own backyards, and we hope you'll join us again next time. Have a great week. Thank you.